Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Here's verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Right? Now, this portion is scriptural. Okay? Leviticus 19, 18. Okay? And then he goes on to quote something else. And hate your enemy. So the love your neighbor part is scriptural. Hate your enemy is more colloquial in the original context. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your, your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this, again, the, the, the closing phrase is, I mean, a Mount Everest of a teaching, this calling to be perfect like God is perfect. This, to me, is the very essence and the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, something that is utterly lost on atheistic critics. Richard Dawkins, you've never gotten anything from Matthew chapters 5 through 7 right in your whole blessed life. You've never remotely gotten this even close to right. You don't get it. The whole point of this sermon is to show us how drastically short we fall from the law. Okay, it's not enough just to not commit adultery. If you just look with lust, you've already committed adultery. It's not enough just to not murder. If you hate someone, you're guilty of the same sin in your heart. The standard is perfection. And guess what? Not one of us meets it. He opens up the sermon by telling us, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the most religious and the most elite guys in town, you're not going to go to heaven. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Like, if you grasp this sermon, it royally bums you out, okay? If you finish this sermon and you just feel a desperate need for a savior, good, you've grasped it. Everyone, including the super religious elite. By the time the sermon was done, we're like, oh man, like, we are really messed up here. There's not a single righteous person here. No one's perfect. No one's getting to heaven. We're all a bunch of sinful, murderous, adulterous liars. Like every one of us here has sinned. Even the religious guys, like the Pharisees, if they're not righteous enough, then we're certainly shot down. Like not a person here stands a chance. Wow, I feel really bummed. I would say that I am poor in spirit. Aha, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's how it began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You feel conviction for sin. You see, by the law, how short you fall from God's standard and how desperately you need a savior. Be perfect, Jesus said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you hear those words and you feel up to the challenge, you seriously lack self-awareness. Every one of us needs a savior. So let's go back to this because it runs right along with what he just taught in yesterday's devotion, okay, verse 38 through 42. Go back and watch that. That's the turn the other cheek thing. No, it's not about not defending yourself. It's about responding to hostility with grace and going above and beyond what's expected of you, especially as a Roman citizen who was a Jew under persecution, right? That you would respond with grace to those who would treat you with evil hostility. And now he's gone on to say that you love, your, love those who persecute you. You pray for those who persecute you. You love your enemies. You love your neighbor, that is scriptural. Hate your enemy is not scriptural. 
that was colloquial, meaning it was something that was just said during the uh, said in their day, in their age. It's so amazing how not only does Jesus show us how short we fall from the law of God, but he also completely debunks the, the, like the pop religious psychology of his day. Okay, if he'd given that Sermon on the Mount today, he would probably throw out some quotes that you see from celebrities today. Right, this pop psychology sense of morality that comes out, what causes us to want a virtue signal, right, where we want to echo what these famous people do for some reason, like that's what Jesus would have called out today. And now he's doing the same thing. He's calling out false teaching. There's never anything in, this, in the word of God about hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, that's biblical. Hate your enemy, that was never in scripture. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. You are most like your heavenly father when you are praying for those who persecute you, when you are loving toward your enemies. He goes on to say, God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, so you don't, you don't know whether or not you're a child of God based on whether or not God's causing the sun to shine on you or causing it to rain on you. You don't look at the sun shining on someone who is wicked and opposed to God and ask why it's raining on you. God's going to cause it to rain on them. He's going to cause the sun to shine on you. That's not, you don't know that you're a child of God based on whether or not the sun is shining on you. You know whether or not you're a child of God if you love your enemies and you pray for the people who persecute you. That's when you are a child of your Father in heaven. If you only love the people who love you too, you're not doing anything distinctive. All right, even, even tax collectors do that. He says, now tax collectors are the most hated guys in the world, which is so funny because reading Matthew's gospel and he was a tax collector. All right, the most despised people in culture love the people who love them. Moreover, if we only love the people who love us, we do nothing to grow love multiplicatively within a culture. If people only love within their silos and they don't love beyond, they don't respond to harsh treatment with love and grace, like see the turn the other cheek teaching, then there is, there's no increase in the love within the culture. The only catalysts by which love may increase culture-wide is when Christians who have the love of God, the greatest love that there is, show love to those who are not loving toward us. That is the only way by which love grows. It's not the straw man version of love that is virtue signaling within culture. It is the true love of God. So if you only greet brothers and sisters, you're not doing anything unique. Even Gentiles do the same. Right, so this is a high calling. And it's also how cultural change begins. Now he sets up the, sets up the case, the necessity for the coming crucifixion exquisitely in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, wow, he has just called us to an incredibly high standard. That is a jagged pill to swallow, to love your enemies and to pray for the people who persecute you. But that's when we're most like the children of God. That's when we are most ourselves. Christians then are indeed salt and light. We are catalysts for cultural change, even here in Seattle. <laughs>